Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, my name's Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and joining me today from the ruins of the old world... It's all so ruined. Uh, my name is Ed, my pronouns are they and them, and you get to listen to me talk today. Hooray. Hooray! And what are you going to be talking about, Ed? The OG classic, uh, at least for us, Warhammer Fantasy. Fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. I don't know if we'll ever actually get around to talking about Warhammer 40,000. That's not just an episode, us uh, uh, dunking on it. I mean, if we get through this series where we talk about various monsters... We could do a series talking about the factions of Warhammer 40k. Part of me wants to dunk on 40k because it's 40k and Games Workshop, but at the same time, it's probably my favorite science fiction universe, probably beating out Star Wars, which is impressive. It's just everything else around it I don't like. (laughs) I would not go that far. I... The lore is interesting, but it is not my favorite science fiction setting by a long shot. What do you mean? You you don't like satirical uh, science fiction settings that fans have taken completely out of context and unironically think that they're the good guys? I mean, yes. <laughs> but also, part of the problem is that the lore has gotten so far up its own ass. <laughs> I refer you... <laughs> the what? <laughs> Said, move the game forward. <laughs> well, they did. Uh, the game has moved forward from where it was when we played it. Uh, some of the Primarchs came back, and they... You've seen those new, like, sleek, slim space marine guys? Oh, the the Primaris Marines? Because yeah. Because people were like, from... aren't space marines supposed to be, like, eight feet tall? Yeah, the minis are about the same size as every other dude. Yeah, those are like slimmed down version new new model Space Marines that came back because the um, Cadia fell and the Eye of Terror expanded. They have moved the plot forward. Uh, incrementally. Incrementally. And I would say to a greater extent than a lot of people were expecting. Um, it hasn't actually changed anything, but they moved the plot forward a little. See, uh, I no, think... I'm saying I... it's so far up its own ass because of the Horus Heresy novels which are like 30 books now? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Which are just telling a background story to the setting. Yep. And are, like I said, that's why I think it's so far up its own ass, is those books, when you tell, when you write a prequel series that is longer in terms of, like, word count than most actual like when you write more than tolkien you have a problem yeah when your prequel series to your weird fantasy to your weird space fantasy is more than tolkien and more convoluted and weird than tolkien you got issues (laughs) but that's not what we're talking about and in fact it's not even what we should be talking about right now because we have a segment on this podcast called the weekend hobby where we talk about what we've done the last weekend hobby it's pretty self-explanatory, that name. Yep. I'll go first. I have had two D&D sessions since the last podcast, uh, both in the Eberron campaign 
in the Wednesday group, the party went to a party. Uh, one of the characters, the youngest character in the game, uh, was having a birthday. And so she in threw a big party and invited all of the random NPCs that they had, like, had interesting interactions with in the last uh, almost year of the game. Fun times. Uh, this included two dragons, a sphinx, um, a, a bunch of goblins, a harpy, just a whole bunch of weird NPCs. Um, and so they had a big party and there were birthday gifts given to her. None of them were super like game breaking, but could be fun. The Sphinx gave her a book of riddles, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the dragons, who was an astronomer, gave her a big book on stars and their meanings, which I described as being a giant, dusty tome that is incredibly dry. <laughs> and he autographed it. Fancy. Um, and so on and so forth. So that's going to be a entertaining thing there. Um, and then they also got a gift that came in a box that, upon close examination, was made of bone. Uh, um, I'm going to say don't open it. Oh, they did. It contained a gear from a Warforged, from a Warforged party member who died many, many sessions ago. Warforged zombies. And a note from a reoccurring villain that they thought they had killed saying uh, to meet him that he had something they wanted and that they needed to meet him at a theater location at midnight. Um... So they were like, uh, that's a trap. <laughs> but we're, we have to go anyways, because uh, former party member who was dead, we thought. Um, and so they went, and the theater, like, they walked in, and there was an old man there who started, who was like a caretaker and a former actor, and who started doing acting things, as because they claimed they were there to, like, check it out for acting reasons. Um, acting! That's why we're here. Yeah, basically, yeah. They're like, oh, we might stage a play. And he's like, actors, take my hands! And da da da! And then, uh, turned out he was a ghost. And they all got, like, pulled into ghost version of the theater. Oh, boy. Um, and to escape, they had to collect some notes and put them together in the right order and then perform a brief chunk of play see this is um, what happens when you say the name of a scottish of the scottish play oh no it theater. was hamlet uh they had to perform part of uh, act one scene one hamlet personally i would have gone with richard the third i mean i, I kinda... think that only works if you have like a lawful evil party yes richard the third would be perfect for a lawful evil party um i did hamlet because it there's a ghost in it yeah right? that works Yep. Um, so it was the bit between Hamlet and the ghost at the beginning. Um, and then I tweaked it and had another, like, a knight appear with a wand. Be gone, foul ghost! And so that allowed the uh, party's cleric who to have a part. Because I needed three parts for the three players. Or if you want to get, like, meta-cubed, you do the play within a play within a role play. That's, uh... Have I, mean, I delved too deep? <laughs> you've delved too deep and too greedily. Uh, 
upon escaping from the ghost version of the theater, they're back in the normal version of the theater to find the guy they thought they had killed, who is now a revenant. Um, which is a type of undead where if you kill them, they come back 24 hours later and keep tracking you down. And they always know where you are because they've sworn an oath to kill you. Um, he's fun. He won't, he'll show up again. Um, and again, and, and again, and again, until and again. you get a sufficiently powerful spell to get rid of him. Um, but he had with him two skeleton, two minotaur skeletons and a zombie beholder um, as his undead support team. And the party was like, that's a zombie. Be- Run away. Like they fought him and won pretty handily. They didn't take a whole lot of damage, but they did have to like, escaped from the beholder and one of them like ran in circles away from a minotaur because well he's kind of squishy he's a bard sorcerer and that's not someone who's going to stand up to a zombie minotaur to a skeleton minotaur in a hand-to-hand combat reminds me of a martial arts class i took once where part of the uh, i guess you'd call it the midterm was to survive basically two minutes against two opponents and uh try and not uh get knocked out and there was a uh, very petite woman in the class and her strategy was to just literally run these other two dudes around in circles and it worked she didn't get touched yeah no that's a entirely it's a viable strat it's a legitimate strategy yeah um i think that's a secret family technique um the other party uh having defeated an evil artificer they had a brief chat with the Lord of Blades, um, where, among other things, he he basically was like, okay, cool, you did kill that guy for me, you're not interfering with my stuff, um, the Warforged member of your party seems interested in potentially joining me, um, so if you, I'll tell you about the bad guys and what they're doing here and what, like, what my scouts have seen and one of my scouts will lead you there. And uh, I personally am not going to get involved because, and then he hinted that he had, uh, he was in the process of bringing back online a Warforged Titan, Warforged Colossus, the giant robots that were built at the end of the war. Sounds like a trap to me. I mean, it's not, it's just, that's what's going on with him. And he could have been the villain of the game if things had gone differently early on. Um... In which case they would, you know, have to fight his Warforged Titan Colossus, whatever. The the super big giant robots that are so big that you have maps of the inside. <laughs> um, nice. They're, they're dope. They are proper giant robots. Um, instead, the scout led them to the fortress that the uh, Lords of Dust had built in the Mornlands, the Citadel. Um, and then the party remembered that, in fact, the crazy artificer they had fought had mentioned some something about like secret tunnels into the old house caneth facility that was there and they were like this is being built on top of the house caneth facility maybe we can get in through tunnels and then they fought the monsters that were near the tunnel exit and headed into those the monsters were uh based off of something from 40k actually but uh their psychic screams that paralyzed people did not go well for the party's barbarian who spent most of the fight paralyzed. 
Um, on the other hand, everybody else just killed the things, so that worked out nicely. And uh, I've also played Dwarf Fortress, but that's not crazy important. And um, Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, I haven't done a lot of Dwarf Fortress. Uh, I think that's my week. Ed, what's your week in hobby, Ben? Week in hobby, you say? Um, I'm just going to yada, yada, yada my way through uh, why I haven't done any hobby stuff lately. If you listen to any of like our last two months of episodes, it's probably the same reasons. Uh the one hobby-related thing I did do was uh, last week we went to our friendly local game store and looked around, and I found a copy of Mutant Mutant Crawl Classics from Goodman Games, which is a series of games that tries to emulate the old, like, OG-style theater of the mind-type role-playing games where... Players don't last very long, and it has a more adversarial relationship between the DM and the players. Um, the original system was called Dungeon Crawl Classics, and was basically just them trying to recapture, uh, like, OG D&D. Um, and then they came out with a pseudo-sequel slash supplement called Mutant Crawl Classics, which is, like, weird sci-fi-themed. Uh, Think, like... There's a lot of Fallout 2, uh, Gamma Worlds, Mad Max, um, Frank Frenzetta paintings, that kind of weird sci-fi, which is like the kind of sci-fi that I really dig and I think should come back. Um, I haven't finished reading the book, but I appreciate the uh, artwork that they have in there. Um, there's a couple of old school things that I'm not super jazzed about like how if you're playing anything other than a human your race is basically your class um i feel like you could do more with your character creation but if you're trying to replicate that old school feeling it would make sense that if you are a mutant or something like that you're gonna have special powers that a regular human necessarily wouldn't so a human would have to choose their own class um the thing that I do like the most about it, though, is how their character creation system works. And part of it is that character creation is entirely random. You're literally rolling dice to see uh, who gets born and kind of almost like raising them up through childhood. And because you can end up with characters that end up with negative HP, because your starting HP roll at level zero is just 1d4 you can end up with negative HP. And so then you have to come up with some explanation of, Oh, they died in childbirth or they didn't survive to young adulthood. Um, and each so, player sort sorry. of like the old traveler system for character creation, which yeah. was known for having characters that could die during character creation. And so like each player starts off with a handful of characters and at least for mutant crawl classics, I assume they have a similar, uh, system and a similar justification in the dungeon crawl uh, version. But in this one, basically you are uh, sci-fi cavemen and you have to go out into the world and bring something shiny back to the village. And once you have done that, those who survive are considered adults uh, within your, your group of people. And so you start off with all these characters, they go off on a level zero adventure and they call it the character funnel. And basically those who survive 
depending on the DM, can either just automatically be upgraded to first level, or if you have a particularly cruel DM, uh, you have to get the requisite number of XP points before you can make it to first level. Uh, so even after you survive your initial really deadly level zero uh, encounter, you may have to continue hiding in fear from things that are only marginally stronger than you because you have one HP. Um, but they do have things, they call them one HP wonders, where they have a character who somehow survives despite having only one HP and goes on to be like a major character in the game. Um, <clears throat> I imagine depending on like how many times you play the game, that system could get kind of old just because it's like, okay, you know, it's like the first hour of an RPG game. It's like, oh, I got to go through the tutorial and got to go through all these missions, blah, 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 before I can kind of just run wild. But it's something that I haven't really encountered much in RPG games. And I think it's an interesting system. I wish they maybe had fleshed it out a little bit to add in like um, random events or things, just add a little bit more personality to like your character growing up from, you know, when they're born to when they have to go on this first level zero journey. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's pretty neat so far um, when it comes around my turn to run an RPG game again, might go with dungeon crawl classics, at least through like a level zero um, encounter. They have one that they publish. That's uh, your band of uh, not really adventurers, young adult, adventures, whatever you want to call them, uh, wake up trapped in a gigantic irradiated ant farm. And you have to escape from this gigantic hive of ants, kind of like in uh, them. I think the only, the, the only tricky part might be that, uh, it doesn't look like Goodman has really published much of their stuff, uh, on roll 20. So I might have to do a bit of my own shenanigans to, get stuff to people as far as like documentation or all that. Um, yeah, I was kind of thinking maybe Morkborg would be the next one I want to run, but part of me just really wants to run Morkborg in person. I don't know why. It's um, the style of that game. Seems like it's better suited to in-person than um, online play. Yeah. And I think also potentially for the, the crawl classic series, um, because the game and encounters are meant to be like so deadly, it could potentially lead to a shorter game experience, or at least maybe one that's more tightly run. Cause I think I let Rhyme of the Frostmaiden get to Skyrim ish and it ran far too long and there wasn't a whole lot of direction. The so campaign maybe, is very Skyrim ish. Yeah. So maybe a campaign that has the potential to maybe end prematurely and they're like, okay, well, let's start something, you know, something else or. Uh, something where I'm going more by the book, because looking through their adventure books, they're much more tightly run, whereas Frostmaiden, it's kind of an adventure, but also kind of a source book, and you gotta kind of finagle your way through it. But I also just really like that post-apocalyptic type fantasy stuff, and I haven't been able to find good material for Gamma World, so I think that's a, a, good, a good place to start, but we'll see. Um... That's really all I did for my weekend hobby. Hooray. Hooray. So on to the main topic. Woo! The fantasy with the Warhammers. Yep. Um, 
I don't know as much about you, but I'm pretty sure this is where our group got our start in wargaming, um, was with Warhammer Fantasy. Um, I know you and Haas had made, like, some actually really cool FEMO uh, fantasy figures, and you guys had been doing something with that. Um, And then I don't really know how we got looped into Warhammer, but somehow we all did, and I remember being a friend of ours who was a couple years older Mm -hmm. um, was playing it. And we thought that the miniatures he was using looked really cool. And so various people started looking into different miniature sets. And uh, yeah. And at that time, the only one that was really available in the local game stores was Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah. And I guess you really don't need any other justification than the miniatures look cool uh, as a reason to start playing. So good for us. Uh we didn't even really start out playing Warhammer proper because each of us had just a handful of miniatures. I had some lizard men. Lewis had some uh, high elves. I think you started with Skaven and just stuck to it as far as I can nope, remember. I started with high elves and then was like, no, these guys are dumb. Give me rats. Ah, Yeah, so we kind of made up our own rules and did that for a while. And then at some point in the early 2000s, uh, we got the actual rule books and started playing it uh, by the rules. And then here we are 20 odd years later, still doing mini wargaming. So for all the shit that I like to throw at Games Workshop, uh, good job getting us into the hobby. Because without them, I don't think we would actually have started. Because really, they were the only game in town. Um, without any internet access or ability to find other games, because there were other games out there that were published independently and used, you know, miniatures made by Rawl Partha or old Grognards with their lead historical figures and stuff like that. Yeah, by the time we were in high school, uh, War Machine was also available as mm. a playable system. Yeah, I don't um, really know early much about days War for that, but I know some of the game stores in town had War Machine models for sale, even if they didn't have a community of people playing them. Hmm. That was in like 2005 ish, I want to say. Interesting. War Machine is one of those ones that I wanted to play, but I could never find a faction that I really liked. And at least for a while pre pandemic, it was big at our local game store they had a lot of war machine players and they had a lot of war machine product and then the game just straight up died i don't know it, what happened uh it goes through cycles um the um in like 2019 it kind of dropped off and then they didn't announce a new version until 2022 mm. Um, and it, uh, the new version, which officially kicks off like this year is a full reboot. Ha. So it, it, it's complicated. It goes through weird cycles. Weird. Um, well, that might be, that might be one that I'll try in the future since I'm always down to try new games, just like I was down to try Warhammer fantasy. Yes. Yeah. Not a new game. Nope, not a new game, but a dead game. At least for the time being, there's there's uh, 
potential for some kind of reboot, but I haven't heard a whole lot about it, and I haven't particularly cared much, so I probably won't talk about it here. But the original Warhammer Fantasy, uh, the first edition was published by Games Workshop in 1983, and it was created by Games Workshop employees Brian Ansell, Richard Hallowell, and Rick Priestley. Uh, it was the first game to use proprietary models. Uh, before that, you know, you had your raw Partha stuff, or whatever you could find online and or in catalogs. Well, I guess back then it would have been catalogs or conventions uh, for your historical games. And the direct inspiration from it for it came from a game called Reaper that Hallowell and Priestley had made in 1978, and they came out with a second edition in 1981. The game is more skirmish-oriented and uses around 30 models instead of whole armies. And if I can find a set of rules for Reaper, I would be very much interested in seeing what this game used to look like, since Skirmish is kind of more my style anyway, but also just for historical novelty, I guess, kind of like how I read through the rules for Chainmail, and it was like, wow, this game is not for me. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, in 1983, the game was originally released as Warhammer, colon, the mass combat fantasy role-playing game. Woo! Yep. The original game was much more of a blend of both role-playing and fantasy, or sorry, role-playing and war game, with particular attention being paid to uh, the spellcasters in the game, and they could, like, gain levels and things could happen in between uh, matches of a campaign and all that. And... Yeah, the reviews were kind of mixed. People liked the wargaming rules, not so much the role-playing. Everybody's like, yeah, the role-playing is kind of light. There's really, like, not enough in there. If you want an actual role-playing game, you're probably better off playing something like Dungeons & Dragons. So, it people were interested, but not as interested, maybe, as they could be. Uh, the original game also came bundled as separate books, which is something that G-Dubs has kind of gone back to in an infuriating manner. But the first book had just the core rules explaining how the game system worked, how the armies worked and all that. Uh, the second book was Magic and Wizards. And then the last book was the role-playing guide and campaign book. The first edition also gave very little in terms of like background or lore for the Warhammer world. They're just like, here are some armies, here are some wizards, duke it out, nobody cares why, really. Or make up your own your own reason, um, because, you know, you're doing your little roleplay side hustle thing in there. Actually kind of gives me Inquisitor vibes, because um, that one, that was a weird hybrid of both roleplay and... Uh, war game just at a larger scale ironically these type of games seem to be coming slightly back into fashion um, you're seeing more role play elements kind of bleed into some war games particularly skirmish war games um, I think that could be part of the reason of why it wasn't as well received in like the large army wargaming style is because it doesn't really lend itself that well but if you have a game like Inquisitor or uh, Frostgrave or Mordheim, which uses smaller smaller scales, named characters that have distinct traits, uh, that lends it much more to role-playing. Uh, let's see, what else? 
second edition came out the next year in 1984. Uh, it expanded and cleaned up the rules and was much better received. They also included info on what was, quote, uh, the known world, which was a very fantasified version of the real world and of real world history. Uh, they what? also <laughs> No! The, the town em- of Kislev? Yeah, have you ever heard of that? Or something? <laughs> the town, the, 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 the entire empire being basically just the Holy Roman Empire? <laughs> I've, I've never heard of an elective monarchy before. And what is this? Uh... A, a kingdom that has a different, uh, very defined separation between the nobility and the peasants. Never. My God, and and <laughs> and they're full of knights. Yep. What? What sort of madness is this? So yeah, they they draw they drew a lot on like real world European history, uh, and then sprinkled in some elves, dwarves, orcs, ogres, undead, chaos mutants who were supposed to be like inspired by the vikings you know mysterious people from the north coming to raid the quote civilized world uh they also started taking a lot of inspiration from tolkien obviously and a couple other authors who i haven't read but probably should uh named paul anderson and michael moorcock um, i've read some paul anderson although mostly his science fiction stuff and not his fantasy stuff yeah and it sounds like also a lot of the kind of grim the beginnings of the grim darkness uh of the fantasy started to come from uh moorcock's writings yes uh, i am I've, i'm haven't read his stuff directly but i'm familiar with i think is this the elric series i think so yeah that is very grim and dark yeah i should probably add them to my list because i'm trying to do less doom scrolling on social media because honestly it's like not much is going to change in the next five minutes when the app re-scrolls to the very top so i've been trying to add some uh some more literature into my diet to maintain my status as a fancy member of the literata i guess i don't know yeah (laughs) currently currently uh reading through a collection of uh uh, who's who's the guy who did I Have No Mouth But Must Scream? Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison. I, yeah, I'm reading Harlan Ellison because the world is bleak <laughs> and I hate myself. <laughs> and you want to read a problematic author. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's where I'm at literature-wise right now. Good times. Uh, future editions of Warhammer Fantasy, they only really made incremental changes. Nothing big really happened uh i guess you could say until the series was nuked in 2015 and got retooled as age of sigmar uh sixth edition came out in 2000 and that's when we started playing um there is an unofficial continuation of the game called ninth age which is still played somewhat at the local level uh the last time i went to our semi-local uh game convention uh, they had a ninth age tournament, so that was pretty cool to see. Um, there was one dude who was running Bretonians, and man, I forgot how colorful those armies are. It's just like an explosion. I no, mean, no color I, theory present at all. I mean, they're based on historical chivalric knights formations, where every individual knight is dressed up in their personal like banner colors and stuff so they are just massive massive blocks of weird shit yep it's kind of cool yeah so the game 
the game had like little incremental changes. There aren't like big, big leaps in gameplay design through most of the the game. Uh, going back and watching some uh, like guerrilla miniature games or mini wargaming.com, uh, watching them play, they'll usually play like eighth edition, which was the last one. Um, there'll be a couple of things in there that I'm not familiar with, like spells work differently and stuff like that, but it's more or less the same game. Um, I just never really cared enough to go back and see what actually changed because the game looks functionally the same. By which I mean the game simulates battles by, quote, large armies. Um, I... I put large armies in quotes because when I think large armies, I now at least I think for like six millimeter, especially having read the rules for a game like Hail Caesar, where you're simulating large ancient medieval battles that in theory encompass thousands and thousands of dudes uh, duking it out for uh, the powers that be. I, I don't know where I was going with that train of thought. Uh, but Warhammer, you have maybe 50 to 100 ish guys in your army. So it's almost more of like an actual skirmish of what we would consider a skirmish. But, you know, there's there's always an element of abstraction in war games. So maybe that one that one rank of dudes in your infantry is actually like 100 guys instead of just five. I don't know. Do with it as you will. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you can have more than 100 guys in your un in a army if you're playing goblins. That is very true. But that's about... Most armies are not going to be more than 100 guys, and some are going to be quite a bit less if you're playing, say, ogres. Yeah, I always wanted to play ogres. I thought they were really cool. Uh, but just never got around to it because ogres came out at a time when I really wasn't doing much wargaming-wise because I was a college student making... $10 an hour part-time. So that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for wargaming. So yeah, the game simulates large, quote, large armies moving in formation. You've got your infantry, your cavalry, monsters, siege engines, and characters. And it goes in uh, phases where you have your movement phase, your magic phase, your shooting, your hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I think psychology was the last phase, if I remember correctly. And it plays in an I go, you go fashion. So, you know, you run through all your steps with your side and then the other person goes through all the steps on their side. Ooh. And yeah, I think G-dubs is really the only like big holdout on that anymore, at least from the games that I've been keeping up with. Everybody else seems to have moved on to... Uh, I can't, I'm blanking on the word here. It's not asymmetric. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the term we're thinking of, but the style where um, alternating, alternating activations. Alter, yeah, alternating activations. Even, I mean, even G-Dubs has moved on to that with, uh, I think Warcry does alternating activations and Kill Team definitely does alternating activations now because it is clearly the superior system and I don't know why... 40k and or age of sigmar just don't jump on that bandwagon with their new additions because it is the better way to do the game and you have less opportunity 
for situations like one Warhammer game where I was in where my general got sniped on the very first roll of the very first turn. And because my army was still lined up in the deployment zone, they all ran and I lost because I had no army on the table. Yep. That, that happens. Yep. Was was that... Uh, who are you fighting with then when that happened? Uh, I was playing against Lewis. He had his Empire Engineer with a sniper rifle. Ah, uh, because, I mean, I remember my army having the warp lock sails and being able to do that kind of thing as well. Yeah. I don't... Thinking back, there's a there's a lot of shenanigans in Warhammer Fantasy that can be really hard to work around. Um, particularly any kind of, like, gunpowder or, quote, like, technological weaponry. Uh, your Skaven had a lot of that that was really frustrating to get around. Empire, uh, you had a lot of black powder weapons, which are annoying because they ignore armor saves. Um, I think my only like thing that I was really good at doing was I had a, because I was a weird teenager, I just liked the big monsters and most of the big monsters caused terror. And so I would just run around the board trying to frighten as many units as I could into just running away. And then I could do a follow-up charge and just obliterate them instead of having to actually fight them. Uh, sometimes it worked more often than not, than not it didn't, but that's the fun of playing against the empire or the dwarves. Yeah. I would say that as the Skaven, I had a lot of cool technological warfare solutions, um, ranging from poison gas to flamethrowers to right sniper rifles with incredibly long range and the ability to punch right through armor. But I had basically no cavalry options. That is true. And my magical options were much weaker overall than most of the other factions. Although I do think giant rat cavalry was a missed opportunity. I mean, That's they had the back. rat ogres, which, you know, were giant rat monsters. Um, yep. But yeah, the lack of uh, some form of cavalry was kind of a weakness. I mean, you know what would be even cooler than uh, giant rat cavalry? No. Sewer motorcycles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That that would be awesome. That seems like a thing that would actually happen in the, Clans, in the Warhammer universe. Yeah, clan, skyer, sewer motorcycles. Yep. That I, would be I, pretty sweet. I imagine... I, they had the Doom Wheel, which was like a giant mono-wheel tank thing, but was also kind of terrible. I'm imagining, like, um, sort of snowmobile-esque, but with wheels, maybe... Snowmobile no, with like, paddle to go through the sewer water. Well, it's got to be like a half-track motorcycle thing. Because <laughs> that's the exact nature of how weird the Skaven stuff is. Half-track, but with giant rats running in the wheel to pull it along. No. <laughs> yeah, I played I played Dark Elves. I'm, just, I'm not good at war games in general, or games in general, and I never really figured out what exactly my army is good at. We had a lot of, like, specialty infantry. Because I think their special choices very much outweighed the core choices. Because you had to take a certain number of core choices, a leader, 
and then depending on how many points you were playing, because you had uh, point systems, uh, that impacted how many of the various ty types of infantry you could take. So Dark Elves, I remember, had a lot of special infantry that were very good at doing a specific thing. So, like, the Executioners, they were good at getting in there and especially taking down, like, big characters or, like, large monsters because they had Killing Blow. Um, the, I think they're called Black Guard. They're basically, like, the Emperor's bodyguards. Nothing could really make them break. They would literally just keep fighting until the entire unit was destroyed. Uh, Witch Elves just run around and kill everything, but they're very squishy because this is the early 2000s, so you essentially had naked women running around the map uh, killing everything, but they were also very easy to kill and they were hard to control because they just tended to kind of do what they wanted. Um, and then we also had like a lot of large monsters and like monstrous cavalry, but they all suffered from the stupidity rules, which also made them uncontrollable and was very annoying. Uh, I remember I went to a tournament once and I had my cavalry or no my chariot which was pulled by giant lizards and it failed its stupidity test and ran headlong into a building and wrecked itself so that was fun yeah well um that's what you get for using chariots like an idiot yep everybody knows you don't use chariots after um the invention of the uh stirrup this is true I did have I did have a few uh, light cavalry who would go around and shoot things with crossbows. Yeah, your light cavalry was real annoying, from what I remember. Yep, I did also that same tournament. I remember I had uh, the light cavalry. They swung around from behind a building, jumped a hedge, and just went right into the backside of. Uh, I think it was a dwarf unit that was there, so I'd jump in, poke at him a little bit, and then try and disengage, and then run away and do it again if I could. Which is how light cavalry should operate. Yeah, so let's talk a little, I think, about the, like, deep lore of the setting. <laughs> oh, boy. And maybe go through what the factions of the 40k, or of the fantasy universe were. Yeah, so, like, the deep lore, the original world was created by these dudes called the Old Ones. They never really explain who they are. I had just assumed that they were, like, weird star lizards. Um, but they come down, they create, I think, the elves and the lizard men. I don't remember which uh, one was first. Yes, but they, created, they definitely made the elves and the lizard men. Yeah, they created the lizard men as, like, slaves and boo slavery. Um, and then... I think it was the elves did something they like delved too deep with their magic and ended up ripping a giant hole in reality up at the north pole which no, caused no no it was the old ones themselves so the old ones uh, showed up they created the um they created a number of the races they may have been responsible for humans and developing ogres and halflings from humans and some of the other stuff but they made elves they made the lizard folk um and they created warp gates at the North Pole and the South Pole to, like, facilitate their travel between other worlds. And those uh, kind of collapsed, cutting the old ones off from their civilization and unleashing the forces of chaos. Woo! Um, 
elves ended remember. up having a giant civil war after the old ones left, uh, yep. which created the three distinct types. The dark elves, who are twisted and evil and like collecting slaves and hurting people. Excellent, uh, that, but boo that, slavery. That's what you played. Uh, they're the most metal of the elves. Yep. Um, the wood elves, who uh, live in the woods and do nature shit. They're, they're classic, like, foresty elves. And the High Elves, who inhabit the magical island of Ulthuran, which is your sort of, like, um, Atlantis, or also the elvish undying lands from Tolkien. Um, Basically, it's the magical island where only elves live, and everything's great and nice and pretty and super magical, and uh, no one who isn't an elf goes there, so it's kind of a hermit kingdom. Yep. And I think Um, the Old Ones also, like, created a number of the races as like a response to chaos to try and like defeat them and create like perfect beings who can resist chaos. Cause you had the dwarves who they're like, Hey, let's make these people who resist magic. And yeah, the dwarves are really good at resisting magic, but they're like, fuck this. Let's go live in the mountains. And then the ogres were supposed to, well, before that there's the chaos dwarves who are dwarves who did get corrupted by chaos. (laughs) Um, so the dwarves in forty in fantasy are very classic dwarves. We talked a little about them on our episode about dwarves. They're just standard dwarves. The chaos dwarves are dwarves that are corrupted by chaos, and they have like a Sumerian theme to them. It's badass. It, it's very cool. Um, their giant like hell cannons are super dope as well. Um, the lizard folk live in the jungles of the like new world continent so they're kind of mesoamerican themed they're cool yep um they were 100 percent created by the old ones and they have different subspecies of lizard folk um that have different roles in their society they're very caste based it's not the greatest writing um the orcs and goblins i don't remember are... where the orcs and goblins came from uh, mushrooms. Yeah, I um, just assumed that they were already there. Yeah, who we? It's unclear. But they were created by the two twin gods, Gork and Mork. One of whom is brutally cunning; the other who one is cunningly brutal. Um, and which one is which is an open question. Yep. Uh, so and there's a bunch of varieties of orcs and goblins in different armies: the uh, black orcs, the night goblins and different setups for those um the ogres there is a kingdom of ogres which are you know giant nine ten feet tall almost giants but you know just kind of barbarian ish guys yeah and they Uh, were they were created by the old ones as an attempt to create like a perfect being that would be resistant to chaos because they're very resistant to mutation. They're somewhat intelligent. They're not as dumb as like ogres in like D and D necessarily. They're marginal. They're somewhat intelligent. Um, and they're very large and very strong, but they apparently messed up in their, uh, their magical calculations and made them insatiably hungry. (laughs) And so they eat constantly to satisfy a never fulfilled hunger and they never went back to go uh, put in a hot fix for that because the 
old ones got yeeted back into space or into the eye of terror or whatever. Yeah. And so the ogres could never really get their shit together enough to fight chaos or build a gigantic chaos resistant civilization because they're just hungry and they want to eat all the time. Yeah. And then you have the various human nations, uh, the empire, uh, which is the Holy Roman empire. It very much. So you have elector counts, the emperor, um, they have a mixture of gunpowder weapons and like peasant levies and professional two-handed swordsmen. They're kind of Renaissance era. They're, they're cool. Stylistically, they're very interesting. Uh, They have have several colleges of wizards. Steam tanks, yeah, that are... Yeah, they they got some cool stuff. Um, They also have an Inquisition and a Catholic church on, on like, must-murder-chaos levels of steroids. You have the Bretonians, which is, like, Arthurian chivalric knights, a little, like, uh, French... Charlemagne style stuff. Um, you have Kislev, which is Russia-ish, like the. I mean, yeah, it's Russia like, in the pre. It's from like the Kievan Rus era yeah. of Russian Russian slash Ukrainian history, since that era that area is actually real world Ukraine, not Russia. Yes, it's it's the Kievan Rus. Uh, they're farther north. They're, I don't know a whole lot about them. They, they, they don't really the major, make much of an appearance. They weren't a major faction in the tabletop game. They apparently have been a bigger faction in some of the video games that have come out in the setting. Yeah, the only actual miniatures they had were for the uh, Dogs of War units, and they had dudes wearing uh, Slavic armor and traditional costume riding polar bears. Yes. Um Far, far to the east is the civilization known as Grand Cathay, which is just, it's China as far as anyone knows. But again, I don't think there have ever been miniatures for them and they were not a playable faction. And also just knowing nerds and the time this game was around in general, it's probably best they didn't make an appearance. Yeah, I I like that everyone's like, oh yes, this is something that came from the Far East, from Grand Cathay. But you you never see actual people or anything from there. It's kind of neat that that just exists off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the you have the various forces of evil and darkness, the chaos. Evil! Uh, the various demons and the four chaos gods. I'll uh, do an episode on, the, on chaos. With a K? Yep, with a K. Um, the... the you know, they're evil, warping, corrupting, demonic presences. There are the Beastmen armies, beast which men. are humans turned into beasts or beasts turned into humans. Uh, it's unclear whether they're more man than a horse or horse than a man. Um, they tend to be dumber, but stronger and, you know, natural weapons and stuff. Uh, you have the Chaos Warriors, who are tribes of... Fantasy Vikings. Well, there are fantasy Vikings. The Nord... Norse? Are they just called the Norse? I think they're They're... called the Norse, but the Norse in general were tended to be allied with chaos. Yeah, so there is a group of fantasy Vikings, and there's also the tribes of, like, full-on chaos-worshipping barbarians who also tend to have heavy armor. Um, The chaos warrior groups, which uh, is strange, because most barbarian nomadic groups don't forge large amounts of metal 
in the in the lore like when you see a whole unit of chaos warriors they're like a group of the best of the best who've like banded together and your average chaos warrior was actually just like the barbarian marauders and then the chaos armor that the big armored dudes wore was like demonic metal that was a gift from the gods for particularly proficient warriors and it would like meld into your skin so you could never take it off so those dudes they're like they're like the stormtroopers of the chaos universe they're elites but they're technically also kind of the meat shields much how like the stormtroopers are supposed to be elite but it's actually the imperial army who are the the rank and file yeah um and then, of course, you have the various uh, undead factions. Uh, the Tomb Kings, who are Egyptian. They're just straight-up Egyptian. They have pyramids um, and sand and mummies. Um, yep. And that's the, the first necromancer, Nagash, yep. uh, was one of those. Uh, and then the vampire counts of the Old World are um, Dracula. They're yep. a bunch of Draculas. They're, they're vampires. They have castles. They're in a vaguely Transylvanian area. Um, they raise armies of undead. Um, and then, of course, their last... Um, the last and best faction that we haven't talked about yet... Skaven. Boo! I knew it was coming. I was just waiting for you to drop it. The, uh, the Ratmen, who have their own under-empire... Um, that lives beneath the main empire and across much of the old world where you have an entire, like, Machiavellian rat-eat-rat society uh, with various clans, including the, the assassins, the engineers, the, uh, like, experts in bio-warfare and a few others of lesser importance. Um, they, uh, yeah... They they plan to conquer stuff by popping up from underground and just swarming cities. They're my favorites. I still um, got I still gotta say boo Ratman because they beat me at football. Oh yes, and technically at the when the the, the story of the forty k uh, the story of the Warhammer Fantasy universe ended with a event called the End Times. And as far as like ways to end the series, it was. That was pretty badass. Yes, the, the, I gotta the give world props ended. For that. Um, and when it did, there was a vast event, and uh, the Skaven won. So uh, yeah, Skaven, best yeah, it, team. The story ended. The story ended with like basically like the center of the universe was like buried beneath the Imperial Castle uh, in uh, the Empire, and. Chaos found out, and then the Empire just got its absolute ass handed to it, and then it became a race between the Skaven and the Undead to see who would get to touch the center of the universe first and recreate the universe in their own image. I don't know what Skaven wanted to do, but I know that Nagash wanted to get it so that he could obliterate all life, because he's a necromancer. What else is he going to do? And then the world ends, and... By that point, Sigmar had also been reincarnated and come back, but because uh, I go with the theory that Sigmar is actually the Chaos God of Order, um, he was able to use his force of will to like preserve a small shard of the old world and 
birth that into the new universe, which is Age of Sigmar, which maybe we'll do an episode on that in the future. But as far as them being like, yeah, we're going to end the series after 8th edition, uh, they went out with a literal bang. So I got to yep. give G-Dubs props for that. I have to say, I, I can tell you exactly what the Skaven plan was. They were going to turn the moon into cheese and then crash it to the earth. Cool. I, I'm just making shit up. That's not what their like lore plan was. I have no idea what their lore plan was. I'm just saying that the rat folk turning the moon into cheese and then bringing it down so that they could all eat it was, uh, you know, that's what well, I would have gone for. Well, I think the the moon in the Warhammer world was made of warp stone, so them crashing the moon into the planet would make sense. I think there may have been multiple moons, but I think one was made of warp stone. Yeah. So that's how that's how uh, Warhammer fantasy came to an end. Um, I want to play Age of Sigmar. It seems like a neat game. It takes a lot of stuff that I don't that I wasn't a huge fan of and fantasy and kind of retools it and. I guess to Games Workshop's uh, pleasure, they sold like more stuff in like the first couple of years of Age of Sigmar's existence than in the entirety of Warhammer Fantasy. Whether that is due to the game itself or just the changes in gaming culture, I can't really say. But Age of Sigmar has been a phenomenal success compared to uh, Warhammer Fantasy. Um. In my opinion, the game is fun, but in hindsight, it feels very old-fashioned and very slow. Um, I'd like to try and play it again occasionally, just for like nostalgia purposes, because I still have all my uh, Dark Elves and still a fair number of Dark Elves that are incomplete and should probably finish, just so that I can say that I actually f- finished this army that I started when I was like 11. Uh, but I prefer games that are smaller, faster, um, a Song of Ice and Fire takes a lot of what I like about the aesthetic of large army games and streamlines it a lot um, and makes it, in my opinion, a lot more fun to play. There was also a lot of people who jumped off the uh, Warhammer bandwagon and onto Song of Ice and Fire when that happened. Uh, so that should be fun. But I also like that Warhammer Fantasy led to a lot of really quality spinoffs and the uh, descendants of those spinoffs. So you have games like Mordheim, which inspired my all-time favorite uh, war game, Frostgrave. Uh, you've we got... will, I think, do a full episode on Mordheim at some point because it's yeah. an important game and a very cool game. Yep. Uh, you got Blood Bowl, which is... Again, f- we'll do a full episode yeah. on. My favorite Games Workshop game of all time. I don't think it's going to beat that out. Uh, uh, what else? Uh... It's not Warhammer Fantasy strictly, but like Night Vault, that's a spinoff of Age of Sigmar. So there's a lot of like spinoff games that the fantasy line produced that I really like, even if the fantasy game itself, the OG one, eh, not so much anymore. But it led to good and better things as games tend to happen where things get revised and edited and, you know, pared down. And then you get to the pure gaming nougat in the center uh, and it also introduced me to the hobby, so I feel like I can't be too harsh on it. But that's pretty much Warhammer Fantasy in a nutshell. Yay. Yay. Big nutshell. Yep. All right. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, where Woo! we talk about a board game. 
Uh, today we are talking about The Quacks of Quedlinburg, which is a Euro game. came out in 2018, I believe. Um, originally created by name of person. Uh, Wolfgang Warsch. Um, it is for two to four players, and it is about being a charlatan quack doctor. Hence the name Quacks. Do you have to speak uh, with an old-timey, like, mid-Atlantic accent as you play? I mean, it, it's set in, like, a medieval town, so maybe an old-timey English or German accent. That probably works better. Um, the idea is that each player is trying to create a quack medicine by mixing up potions, by adding ingredients to your cauldron. Um, each player has their own bag of ingredient chips. You draw chips from the bag, add them to your pot. The higher the value of the chip, the further it is in the pattern, increasing how much your potion will be worth. Um, if you add too many items, your pot can explode, though, which is not good. Uh, at the end of each round, you gain victory points and money to spend on new ingredients, which you buy and put into your bag to be drawn out and to make your potion. There's also some, like, catch-up mechanics involving uh, rats and rat tails to, like keep you together um i need a health inspector (laughs) (laughs) no no you don't and uh at the end of nine rounds whoever has the most points wins Uh, whoever's is effectively been most successful at brewing weird ass potions um so it's a interesting conceptual thing it has a lot of solid mechanics for making this sort of like catch up catch the leader it has a deck kind of a deck building bag building pool building thing um there's some dice mechanics it's it's just got a lot of different mechanics that all move pretty seamlessly together and because people draw chips simultaneously and add them to their pot it doesn't take as long as you might think um it moves pretty quickly uh i have not played it yet i intend to um it's not considered super complex uh i don't only has like about an hour playtime per game um it even has a little like booklet that tells you what the various components do and you can change what they are depending on what you want to do in each game so you have different options available to you so you can change up how it plays quite a lot um i'm not sure i can recommend it because like i said haven't played it though i want to um but it is a fairly popular game. It's in, like, Board Game Geek's, Geek's Top 100. Um, and, uh, yeah. I would say look at it if you're interested in, like, a family board game where you're competing to make weird potions. Uh, don't been, look at it if you're a hypochondriac. This has been preemptive Board Game Corner. Yes, this Board Game Corner brought to you by, I don't know, People who need to buy more board games and have more board games to play. Which is everybody. Yeah, which is most people. So, that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. Um, Like, subscribe, rate, comment, etc. Interact with us in some manner so that we know people are actually listening to these and that the various hits aren't just random bots. Um, Support your local game store. Join a union. uh, Do the things Ed's about to tell you to do. Oh boy. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Adam Madness. I'm not really doing there much at the moment, but if you follow me, maybe you'll get recommendations for other people who are out there also doing stuff and you can get inspired by them as well. Oh, uh, uh, a cab now, a cab forever. Uh, 
donate to your bail funds, your reproductive justice funds, uh, any queer charities that are out there, you can do that. Um, yeah. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>